and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We are taping today on Thursday, April 29th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everyone. Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Good morning, Julie. And Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Hi, everybody. Later in this episode, we will talk to my KHN colleague, Julie Appleby, who wrote the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month about some eye-popping charges for back surgery following an auto accident. But first, the news. So this week, Friday, I believe, marks the end of President Biden's first 100 days. And while I personally think it's kind of a dumb way to measure presidential accomplishments, that battle has been fought and lost. So I guess we're going to do it anyway. Despite the fact that there are no major health expansions in the just-released American Family Plan, the Biden administration has actually accomplished quite a bit on the health front in its first quarter, hasn't it? Yeah, Julie, they have, um, you know, accomplished quite a lot in the healthcare space. You know, coming in on day one, the coronavirus pandemic, first of all, was very clearly President Biden's top priority. He said his initial goal of 100 million vaccinations in 100 days, he doubled that, um, which, you know, you can go back and forth of whether that was like a reasonable initial goal or aiming too low, but vaccinations are been making a lot of progress. We are in a lot of ways, you know, kind of entering a new phase of the COVID-19 pandemic where half of adults, I think the current data is, have gotten at least one shot. The CDC has sort of started to scale back slowly. Um, some of it's public health guidances. So in the COVID front, you know, I think they're definitely moving in the direction that they wanted to move in. There were also sort of, um, you know, some of the more traditional health policy changes that they included in their initial rescue plan, like the ACA subsidy enhancements, which was a big longtime goal of Democrats. Those are through the next two years, sort of making premiums on the Affordable Care Act marketplaces more affordable for people. That was another big initial goal and sort of something that they're definitely pointing to in that sort of more traditional healthcare policy space. And a lot of people, I mean, surprisingly, they reopened healthcare.gov and a lot of people have signed up, many more people than were expected, and it's still open. Yeah, it's going to be open like through August, I think it, it's the current date. So definitely sort of we've got open enrollment, big chunk of the year this year. So, I mean, I was kind of surprised. I did this project that we called The Great Undoing to track how long it takes for the Biden administration to undo the Trump health policies. And I wanted to do this because I remember when Obama came in, it took him in some cases, you know, more than a year to undo some things that I thought were sort of slam dunk George W. Bush policies. Um, But the Biden administration has been pretty fast at sort of, you know, reversing some of these. I mean, obviously, a few needed to be done right away, like the Medicaid work requirements, because they were on their way to the Supreme Court. There's been a fair bit of activity, even though the Department of Health and Human Services didn't even have a a secretary until a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I've been surprised by how much they've accomplished in the the first hundred days. What what, what do you guys think? I will not ask you to give a grade because I think that's even dumber than assessing the first hundred days. Well, I think it's also been interesting. So they've done some of it sort of quietly. Um, you know, like some of the reproductive health things have sort of, they haven't made a lot of fanfare, but they've done them, particularly Title Ten funding, which paves the way for Planned Parenthood to get refunded after the Republicans defunded it. We had a conversation in our newsroom about what what's easy to do and what's not so easy to do. And apparently, for reasons I don't technically totally understand, it's easier to undo a lot of the healthcare stuff than it is the way they tied up 
and not legal, not some of the environmental stuff. So, you know, partly I think it was not as technically difficult, nor was it controversial to the base, right? I mean, these are things, Planned Parenthood is not something that's controversial. Some larger abortion issues are, but for Democrats, you know, letting Planned Parenthood get Title Ten money, this is for birth control for low-income women. This is not abortion. It's not a, you know, a controversial issue. Getting rid of the work requirements is not a... The Democrats have been fighting that for 30, 40 years now. Um, that That is not a controversial issue. Um, there are more rules. Some of them are quite technical. There also have been some things put on hold uh, for a year that will, in fact, sort of more delivery system tests that will go ahead, but not right away, while they t- sort of take a look at some things. Um, but yeah, I mean, they've got a checklist and they're check, 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 checking away. It's like Santa Claus only for healthcare. Yeah, it's, it's a lot to keep track of. All right, well, now I want to talk a little bit about infrastructure proposal part two. We were actually told when infrastructure proposal part one was unveiled that healthcare would be in the next package, part two, but with the exception of making permanent the uh, Affordable Care Act temporary subsidies that you just mentioned, Mel, um, there's no Medicare expansion, no public option, not even a drug a prescription drug pricing proposal, although we did get a shout out in the president's speech Wednesday night. Um, what happened to, to health care being a big part of the next proposal? It's there in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this is kind of a key issue of a, of a key example of sort of looking at health care being a really big priority for Democrats on Capitol Hill. And clearly it's not as big of a priority at this point for the White House. They have their own priorities that they really focused on that they're pushing. It's really interesting to me, sort of, I think this is going to be something that we're talking about a lot in the coming weeks of sort of how much can Democrats go this alone? You know, I've talked to a lot of Democrats who sort of say, well, we can move forward alone. Nancy Pelosi says she's doing this. We're going to do it. Um, I've also talked to a lot of Democrats who would say, yeah, that's great, but it would be a lot easier to do this if the White House was sort of backing it. So I think Biden definitely said, let's do Medicare price negotiations. Let's do it this year. I think time will tell how serious he is about actually pushing for that. And if he does want to do it this year, I mean, this might be his one vehicle to actually get it done this year, whether or not he actually included it in this family's proposal or not, which he didn't. Yeah, I think Mel is right in terms of like the symbolic challenge for Nancy Pelosi and House progressives who really want to do drug pricing, not having Biden directly put it in the plan is really important because it was always going to be tough to get the most sort of progressive drug price bill that a lot of the folks in the House want through the Senate. And you really need a stronger backing from the White House to do that. And the other thing I've been thinking about is if this means they can't get it done this year, what are the dynamics of trying to do this type of health care package closer to an election year? Does that make it easier or harder? Are we further away from the COVID love for the drug industry that sort of emerged? And how does that impact it? There could be some political strategizing and thinking there from the Biden team, perhaps about maybe a politically better opportune time to go after the drug industry, potentially. I, I would point out, we did talk last week about the COVID love for the hospital industry and how that that's already wearing off, um, sort of vis-a-vis their, you know, not implementing the transparency rules the way they're supposed to. So, I mean, yes, I agree. The drug the drug industry is flying high right now every time a needle goes in somebody's arm. But it, it's going to be a, a big issue at some point. But there are some political oh. calculations. I was actually surprised that the Medicare drug negotiations didn't get in. But the other, all the other things, they're political negotiations. This is an enormous package. It's like $4 trillion and there's some tax offsets and, um, you know, it's only 50 votes. Biden can't lose any. So 
that calculation, you know, how does he keep all 50 Democrats united? Was there something that it may not be obvious to any of us right now? Was there one Democrat in a state with a lot of pharma that torpedoed the, the larger package? Do they think they might still be able to get something more moderate than the House Democratic bill? But there is a bipartisan bill in the Senate that's sort of turned over from last year. Do they think that maybe they could get something bipartisan? Do they want to dare the Republicans to do it bipartisan and then go to the voters in 2022 and said, you know, we had a bipartisan bill because Grassley's on it. We had a bipartisan bill and those the rest of those Republicans want you to keep paying high drug prices. I don't know what the political, you know, I'm just, I'm just sort of spitballing here. But there's always a political calculation, particularly when we know the House is going to be a really tight race, not looking great for Democrats. And Biden has the itsy bitsy, teeny weeny, you know, it's 50-50 Senate. And and there's no, they can only lose, I think it's down to like two or three votes in the House, too. Right. I mean, the House has a really tiny majority. Before we move on to, to, to the Democrats, which I want to talk about more, um, the, the one sort of thing in the speech that did seem new was Biden announcing the creation of a new agency, so I guess within the National Institutes of Health, sort of the health equivalent of DARPA, the Defense Department Advanced Research Projects. You know, Biden, obviously, cancer has been really important to him. He lost his son. Um, he was the head of the cancer moonshot under Obama. Um, but could this be a big deal? It was in his budget. It didn't get that much attention. But it, I mean, last night when some of us heard that and thought it was news, some of our colleagues said, no, no, no. If you read the budget carefully, it was in there. So, I mean, we know that Biden wants to do cancer. You know, it's not a surprise that he's going to make that a centerpiece of his presidency. It's a centerpiece of his life and his family's life and of millions of Americans' families' lives. And we are sort of in a in an age of even before COVID, we were in, in a sort of exciting age of discovery with um, immunotherapy and other breakthroughs on the science. So, and is it part of some kind of larger deal with the drug companies later? Who knows? I mean, it's also not a, um, I know like some people are billing it as a cancer initiative. It's really supposed to be broader than that. Alzheimer's has also come up high, but it, it really isn't supposed to be like one disease specific. And the idea, I, I think at first some people said, okay, well, why don't you just give NIH more money? The idea is this is not supposed to be basic research funding. This is supposed to really be bench to bedside, as they like to say. Correct. So kind of maybe having the government um, swoop in where there isn't a lot of private sector interest or sort of money in certain areas, which is interesting because cancer is not necessarily where I think of um, where you necessarily need a lot of government support to get the private sector involved. But there are certainly other areas in the kind of biomedical development space some t- Alzheimer's to a certain degree is one of them, um, antibiotic resistance. Antibiotics. Yeah. Um, where we could use sort of more public money. Vaccines. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to go back to the politics um, because we are seeing at least the beginnings of the usual factions within the Democratic Party uh, on health care splitting off and pushing their own health agendas, which is sort of my my feeling about why maybe the drug, the well, the drug stuff and the rest of the health stuff didn't end up in this package because there doesn't seem to be a ton of unity there. Um, the Medicare for All faction wants to expand Medicare as a stepping stone to Medicare for All. There's still a push for a public option, which, of course, Biden promised on the campaign trail. 
and there are various iterations of just beefing up the Medicare benefit package. Is this the end of democratic unity on health care? And is it going to jeopardize their ability to do anything? I mean, if they do drug, if they are able to do something about drug price negotiations and other drug price limitations, they're going to have money to spend back and they're not in agreement on how they should spend that. I mean, the Democrats have been really unified given how fractious they were both genetically and in, in, in the in the primary. You know, they've really rallied around Biden. If you were looking last night, you know, who was one of the most effusive greeters of Biden? It was, you know, it was Bernie Sanders. Uh, unless I miss, you know, it's hard to tell who was who in a mask, but it sure looked like Bernie Sanders to me. Did the progressives get everything they want? No, obviously not. Did they get more than they expect? Yes. Um, are the moderates moving left? Yes, the country's changed. The circumstances have changed. Are there fights to be had? Yeah, there are fights to be had. And which was part of what I was saying, you know, keeping the 50 together. The House is to the left of the Senate, generally speaking. And this both have narrow margins. And, you know, both have their moderates in the House that Pelosi has to keep on board, too. And this bill can change just because Biden announced something doesn't mean that this is the final version that goes to the floor. Some of these conversations are zooming along (laughs) behind the scenes and we may see things added in the House or added in the Senate or taken out or transmogrified. And it's not the final product. The final product will look different. Yeah, I think that that's that's fair. I mean, obviously, you know, Mel, Congress is going to get their hands on this and do what Congress does. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, House Democrats are definitely trying to move ahead and say, you know, we're moving ahead on drug pricing. We've got an energy and commerce subcommittee hearing next week, sort of kicking off, I guess, what you could say is the new legislative round of H.R. 3. I think progressives in the House are definitely trying to up the fact that this isn't a kind of the traditional progressives versus moderates. You have two big frontliners, Connor Lamb and Jared Golden, who joined a letter earlier this week with Pramila Jayapal, kind of urging the expansion of Medicare. Um, but you also definitely have moderate lawmakers. Um, there, Joe Manchin was quoted in the Post today saying he is not for a expansion of, of Medicare. So this is really going to be difficult to see and to sort of see how, you know, the committee chairs, if they are really committed to getting this through, how they try to negotiate this. I'm interested, you know, we've already seen Democrats sort of take out how they are going to spend any savings they would be able to get from HR3 from that bill, which sort of leaves it wide open of what what is the approach. There's a lot of different ideas on health care. What I think we are seeing is that Hill Democrats really feel as if they need to deliver something on health care. All right. Well, let us move on to COVID because there's a lot. Um, the biggest news of the week is probably what's happening in India, which is experiencing probably the biggest surge we have seen worldwide with hundreds of thousands of new cases every day and thousands of deaths daily. The U.S., after what seemed to be some hesitation, is moving to make more vaccine and vaccine components uh, and other products available to India. This is a case where what's in their interest is really in our interest too, right? I mean, I think people don't understand that until this has gone worldwide, it's nobody's going to be safe unless, you know, we're not all going to keep all of our borders shut indefinitely. Right. And it's that, um, I mean, the big concern among public health folks and people who are thinking globally here is that the virus, as we've seen, it mutates and sometimes it mutates in a direction that is not favorable to us. So, you know, while many Americans are kind of celebrating their newfound protection from vaccines here, the more we allow the virus to kind of spread in all parts of the globe, the more likely it is to develop a mutation that becomes resistant to these vaccines. And then we're in a case where, you know, we need to move even faster to vaccinate again before we've 
given everyone in the globe, but, you know, a first shot at vaccine. And I think that's really where global health people are so concerned about kind of the U.S. not doing enough to either share what vaccine we have that maybe we're not using or also work harder to put political pressure on the drug industry and companies to figure out ways to kind of share intellectual property, help build up manufacturing capacity and other know-how to get the rest, the whole entire world vaccinated faster. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's not enough that the U.S. is doing a good job to, I guess, to the consternation of some of our neighbors, particularly Canada, um, but it doesn't, it really doesn't, we can't fix this, but it's called a pandemic for a reason, that it's impacting the whole world. I think Sarah's point about um, intellectual property, I think that's something that we're probably starting to see a little bit more of, and it's going to become a bigger thing sort of in the coming weeks as the U.S. does become more inoculated as hopefully more a greater part of the population does. And then we're seeing this in other parts of the world. You're definitely starting to see some push from some people to share that intellectual property, make it easier for other places to get these vaccines and to manufacture them. I think that's something we're going to start to hear more of possibly. There was an interesting line in, in Biden's speech last night kind of about sharing vaccines and so forth with the world. But something caveat was kind of like once like all Americans have a chance to get vaccinated and an interesting debate that's been going on is... Well, we do know that for children, you know, the risk of kind of getting severe COVID and dying from COVID is much lower. And so the question becomes, especially right now when vaccines are not cleared for people under 16 or some under 18 here is, do we vaccinate all American children and young people before we push to the other parts of the world? Or is it more important, again, that we vaccinate the adult population in India and other parts of the world before um, children? And I think that's going to get really heated um, potentially soon as well. And this is where the um, manufacturing issues with emergence have also become a global issue because our supply chain has been disrupted because of the problems with manufacturing J&J in this country. Johnson Johnson had a subcontractor. It's a mess. There have been you know, sort of one expose and one problem after another. And then they also manufacture the AstraZeneca. So when you see these which is not yet approved in the United States, So when you, which the rest of the world wants from us. So when you see these comments about, you know, once it goes through safety checks, I don't know how long those safety checks take. And I don't know if that means safety checks plus FDA approval or just making sure that this drug was properly made and is not contaminated or they didn't, you know, throw chocolate chips in there. I'm exaggerating, but it's been problematic and it's not funny, even though I just said chocolate chips. I mean, it's really bad. Yeah, we, talk, we did talk about it last right. week about the problems at that plant but, in Baltimore where they were making both J&J and the AstraZeneca vaccine. And they mix them up, right? Which yeah. is, you know, yeah. like if, if, I, if I put mint chips instead of chocolate chips and my kids will still eat them, but it's a whole different issue if it's a, you know, shot in your arm. So, um, but it has also slowed down our supply. I mean, there is Novavax, which we, uh, a yet another vaccine, um, which has reportedly had some manufacturing problems of its own and is also reportedly straightening them out. So that could be approved. Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, a month six weeks or is that sort of what we're expecting a little longer may june july sometime in the foreseeable future that would be um another source of vaccines both for this country and for for adults i don't think they're doing that on kids yet but it would be another source of vaccination for our country and it would be useful around the world because it's apparently quite good against um, the known variants as well so and there are others in the pipeline too there are several others 
around the world that are being developed, including in the United States, that are actually with, with poor countries in mind. But we need them now. I mean, if you look at you know the problems South Africa's had, the problems that you know the unbelievable problems India is having, tragic, and um, you know a mix of decisions the country made, a mix of decisions people are making, and then probably, you know, the variant is, is also a factor um, in its in being more contagious, easily spread. And then they had, you know, they just had a big religious festival. I believe it's pronounced holy. You know, just enormous numbers of people are crowded together. And that seems to have also been a, a super spreader to the nth degree event. Well, I wa- well, let's talk about the J&J vaccine, um, which is back at, uh, being used in the United States after its two-week pause. Um, apparently, those early polls that showed the public's confidence in the shot had not been swayed uh, by its two-week delay might have been premature. Newer polling suggests the public does have more doubts about J&J than about either the Pfizer or Moderna shots. Could this be a long-term problem in that J&J was supposed to be the vaccine that was going to get to the hard-to-reach people because of its storage requirements? and the fact that it only needs one shot? I I think this is going to be a challenge. I mean, I have seen some people argue that the mRNA vaccines are not as hard to get to um, needed populations as you think. And the U.S. certainly has enough mRNA vaccines. But, you know, there was this hope that, you know, maybe for homeless, more transient populations, college students, you know, you could rely on the J&J vaccine and certainly other places in the world where storage capacity would not be an issue. I sort of think for the U.S. to some degree, this debate over J&J may be a little bit of a moot point in terms of the U.S. vaccination status because we have so much mRNA access. But I do think there could be a global issue. There's still a lot of debate going on even in the, among the scientific community as to whether CDC did the right thing in terms of putting it back on for everybody. I think there are lots of people that feel like they should have been more cautious and maybe either not recommending it for younger women, women under 50, because that seems to be the population where the risk benefit of this side effect versus the benefit of the vaccine is a little bit more unclear. So I think it'll be interesting also to see how it plays out in terms of if younger people get the vaccine, what happens and do they feel like they were properly kind of warned about side effects or what to watch for, how to communicate all of that with their medical um, providers. All right. Well, in some good COVID news, sort of, the CDC this week said if you're vaccinated, you can stop wearing your mask outside, mostly, um, not as Joanne was saying in the case of when you're crowded in with other people, even if you're outside. Um, Trevor Noah just kind of savaged the graphic that the CDC put out. Um, uh, and in a lot of ways, he was right. It's really very confusing uh, because I think the CDC is both trying to be complicated and cautious at the same time. I feel like a broken record here. Here, but why is this so hard to explain to the public about when you need a mask and when you don't, depending on your vaccination status? It shouldn't be this complicated. <laughs> Everybody's uh, smiling and nobody is saying anything. As a, as a, the mask debate has just become, you know, at first it was a political left-right divide in the U.S. And now if there are people on the left who are sort of saying the CDC has been way too strict sort of and ever suggesting we should have had masks outside. So there's just all this tension where you're seeing people basically essentially 
you know, if I'm walking down the street wearing a mask and they like they get angry that you're wearing a mask, even though it doesn't impact you. And I, I think that's some of the dynamics CDC is like working through here. They were asked like on the call when they sort of rolled this out, you know, well, like, can you be more specific and tell us like, what is a big event? What's a large event? And they were like, it's really hard to do that. Right. And some of this is I think you do just sort of have to understand the situation you're in, like, do you know you're with vaccinated people? How close are you to them? It's really imperfect. And I think some of this is people do sort of have to make their own judgment calls to some extent as we move forward in the pandemic of what is your risk tolerance? Do you live with young children who aren't vaccinated? And I think CDC can't quite give us all the answers um, sometimes that we want when you know, you're know you in really complicated situations where every single person, every one of us on this call, right, has a slightly different circumstance, health profile, and it's just not always as straightforward as we think the answers are. Well, I I will say, I will only say that the graphic was, even I had trouble reading it at first because there's sort of colors and people with masks and not with masks. And I mean, I I appreciate that this is complicated and they're trying at once to not be too prescriptive, but to be prescriptive enough that people can understand, but I feel like they're not quite there yet. Um, all right. Well, uh, one one more in COVID. I think there's that policymakers and scientists are starting to put more focus on what they're calling long COVID people who uh, who have been sick or in some cases haven't even been very sick, but who have symptoms that drag out for many, many months. Um, Congress uh, is starting to look at this. There was a hearing yesterday. Mel, what came out of that hearing? Yeah, I think this was, I thought, a pretty interesting hearing. Frentis Collins was testifying and he talked about how in the coming weeks, NIH is going to be sort of launching pretty big series of studies into long COVID, looking at are certain people predisposed to having long COVID? If you get a treatment while you're sick with COVID, does that make you more likely to have these like kind of long-term symptoms afterwards? Trying to figure out like, okay, if people have anecdotally been reporting, I've had long COVID for months. And once I got my vaccination, I started to improve for the first time. Like, what does that mean? So there's a lot of questions that scientists and researchers are going to be looking into with different studies and looking at electronic health records. And this really seems like something that, you know, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are starting to take a bigger interest in. Um, the December COVID relief bill omnibus massive package included sort of this first wave of funding for NIH to sort of launch this study. And I think it's something that, you know, lawmakers are certainly interested in, you know, making sure that NIH and the CDC sort of has enough funding to, okay, once you sort of do these initial waves of study, do we need to do clinical trials for treatments for long COVID? And it was something that, you know, members on both sides of the aisle sort of talked about either, you know, hearing from constituents or somebody's daughter having long COVID. So I think that this is something that is possible for sort of maybe bipartisan looking at, it'll be interesting to see if we see any bills starting to come out of this um, after this hearing, but lawmakers seemed pretty pretty glad to be talking about it. Um, I think Francis Collins noted that it'd been a while that he testified at a hearing with as many members sort of there and trying to talk about it, so. I mean, and there are all sorts of other policy decisions, not just the research, but, you know, there's gonna, uh, disability issues, um, people who can't, normally you have to wait two years to be declared disabled to get benefits if, if you're lucky. I mean, you're not that you're lucky for being disabled, but I mean, the, the, the soonest you're going to get the benefits is, is two years in, in many cases for, for SSDI. There's all these, what rights do you have? You know, do, what if you need workplace accommodations? If you only, if you can only work part-time, if you can't do the same task you were doing before because it wears you out. If you have four days a week when your brain is working and then you got that fifth day when you get that brain brain fog, 
you know, what they're, they're very complicated workplace issues. They're very complicated disability issues. We don't really even have a clear definition of what it is. I would say at least people are not being told by, by and large there. I mean, we are not in a point where people are being told it's their imagination or it's psychological or there's no um, dissing of this disorder. Which there have been with many other disorders, we should point out. And there was at the beginning a little bit with this, too. But, um, I mean, it is recognized. It's not understood, but it is recognized. And I think that, I mean, one of the things that scares me about COVID, and maybe I'm just being a worrier because, you know, that's the way I'm built. This is such a weird disease, right? It kills some people and other people are asymptomatic. It causes kidney disease in some people and respiratory disease in others and cardiac and blood clots in others and neurological symptoms in others. And some people get over it in a week and other people get long COVID. I worry about what is there, is there, is there like a second wave? Is there, if you've had this disease and you seem to be over it and you don't have long COVID, I mean, is something else going to come up and bite millions of Americans in two years or five years or 10 years. I, I want to stress that this is something I'm wondering about. I have not read any scientific literature. I don't want to freak people out. But we don't understand this is a really, really atypical disease. You know, the flu is the flu. You know, other diseases have, have not everybody gets equally sick. Polio had asymptomatic infection, which I didn't know about until fairly recently, but it wasn't like 20 different diseases, you know, and this really is. So acute form, which is really like 20 different forms, and then there's the chronic form, and we need to spend money on it, and we need to spend national compassion on it, and we need to think through not just the research, but all sorts of other supports for people who were just unlucky. They didn't do anything wrong. I think there are a lot of questions about what providers need to do about identifying long COVID. Like, how do you determine the symptoms of long COVID versus anxiety or a cold or anything else and sort of figuring that out. I think that's something that the CDC sort of has said that they're trying to look into, come up with like base definitions and, you know, how how do doctors actually go about treating this is another big question. And there's a lot of people who have long COVID symptoms who never had a positive test because they got sick early in the pandemic when they either couldn't get tested or we didn't have very good tests. So, I mean, it, it's, it could be a bigger problem than we know. I think it's just a reminder that this is going to be with us for, for much, much longer than this sort of acute spreading phase. Um, we're we're going to be talking about this for a long time. All right, we have one more this week in, in, in public health news other than COVID. And I know that the FDA is taking steps to ban menthol on. We will talk about that at greater length next week because it is just happening today. But earlier this week, the Biden administration uh, took a tangible step to try to stop deaths from opioid overdoses by making it easier for medical professionals, uh, in addition to just doctors, to prescribe buprenorphine, which is a drug that's been controversial, but also highly effective in treating opioid addiction. Now many of the onerous training requirements are being lifted and physician assistants and nurse practitioners and other non-MDs will be able to prescribe it. As we have discussed here, the pandemic has actually worsened the opioid problem in many places. Um, This move sounds promising, and I should point out it was originally proposed by the Trump administration on its way out the door, and Biden is now keeping it. Could it make a difference in in the ongoing opioid problem? I think it, it should be helpful. This is something people have called for for a long time. Some of the details may make it not quite as helpful as the top line indicates because essentially the exemptions to make it easier for all different types of medical providers to treat patients with the drug and to you know avoid the trains and so forth sort of stop if you're treating more than 30 patients. And that could be particularly problematic. The line I've heard over the years about this issue has been, there's really not many limits 
if any at all, on who can prescribe opioids and how many patients you can treat with opioids. And yet it is so difficult for doctors sometimes to treat patients who have struggled with opioid misuse or addiction and so forth. And I think that's kind of the crux of it. And people feel like that contributed to this stigma around struggling with this problem and addiction. So it's certainly a positive step in the right direction. But I think advocates and other groups are going to kind of hope they can push it a bit further. Yeah, I think the, the the opioid issue is another one that's going to be with us for the the uh, the foreseeable future. All right, well, that's as much time as we have for the news this week. Now we will play my Bill of the Month interview with KHN's Julie Appleby. Then we will come back with our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Julie Appleby, who wrote the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month. Welcome back, Julie. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this month's patient and what happened to him. Mark Gottlieb is a 59-year-old marketing consultant in New Jersey who was driving his mom to a doctor's appointment when another car T-boned them in an intersection, and it really messed him up. He smashed four vertebrae in his upper spine, six teeth were ruined, and he had various other injuries. And this was back in January 2019. So he needed a lot of treatment. Um, Before we even get into what kind of treatment he had and the bill he got, there are some important things to know about how car insurance interacts with health insurance, right? Because this was a car accident. That's correct. And Mr. Gottlieb had car insurance, and he lives in a state, New Jersey, which is a no-fault state, and they require you to buy a certain amount of what's called personal injury protection insurance. And he bought the maximum amount. 250000 So his car insurance is what's called primary, meaning it pays the bills at first. And then if there's bills left over, your health insurance kicks in. So in this case, he got the initial care that he needed after the accident. And then he went back for another round of surgery. And that was where uh, the, the financial problems took over. What happened with that? Well, that's right. Yeah. So he went and got his teeth crowned and he, he tried injections for pain and chiropractic care and physical therapy. And none of that solved his pain problems. So he went in for surgery back in April of last year. And he had um, some discs removed from his spine and his neck and fused. And that's what led to these bills. And that's when we started to pick up his story. And then as we say, the bill came. How much was it and how much of it got paid? Well, wow. Okay. So the actual charges were more than $700,000. But let's break that down for you. Um, The hospital itself billed $445,000 for the surgery. But Geico, his auto insurer, said, "Mm, we we did a review and we're only going to pay $100. 133000 Okay. The surgeon billed $264,000 and Geico looked at that and reduced it to 141000 approximately. Yeah, I would say, how excessive were these bills? I mean, should it really have been that much money? Yes, that's a lot of money. So let's look at that. So at the end of the day, Geico either fully paid or recommended to be paid about $245,000 for the hospital and the surgeon's bill. So we decided to look at what would Medicare pay, and Medicare would pay about $29,000 for the whole thing, the hospital and the surgeon. So this was eight times more. But, you know, remember Mr. Gottlieb is not covered under Medicare. He's covered under car insurance. So we went to some large employers to see what would they pay for something similar. And it turns out the approximately $103,000 that Geico ultimately paid the hospital was kind of in line with what large employers might pay for in-network care, but it was certainly um, more expensive for his surgeon. The highest 
surgeon's bill in this database of employer plans was about 87000 Now, let's remember, GEICO said that the surgeon would be paid 141000 But here's the catch. Mr. Gottlieb's fund ran out of money before that whole $141,000 was paid. That's the $250,000 worth of insurance that he had. Right, the $250,000 he had, because remember, he had all this care before his surgery, and then he had this surgery, and so all these bills added up, and so, oops, they ran out of money at like $52,000 got paid towards the surgeon. So that left Mr. Gottlieb potentially on the hook for $89,000. That's where we also pick up his story because he was told by GEICO, okay, now your secondary insurance kicks in. So he sends the bill to Aetna and Aetna says, hey, guess what? This provider is out of network, but we will pay $4,000 toward that bill um, based on what we would pay for an out-of-network surgery of this type. That's not a lot of money. And so Mr. Gottlieb withdrew his request because as it turns out, he hadn't met his deductible yet. So he would have actually had to fork out that $4,000. So in the meantime, how much of his bill is still unpaid? Well, that $89,000 is still unpaid, but it's really unclear whether he's going to have to pay it or not because the pain management clinic and the surgeon have not sent him to collections. They have not sued him for this money. They did not return any of our phone calls um, asking what was going on when we... And to be clear, they got paid a lot of money by GEICO, by the car insurance. They did get paid a lot of money. They've got at least $52,000, and he was also getting some pain treatment there before his surgery. So they they did get $52,000 toward the surgery. So it's unclear what's exactly going to happen with this $89,000. So if this is so much more, certainly that much more than Medicare would have paid, and more than most employer insurance would have paid, how did GEICO come up with these numbers? Well, GEICO wouldn't talk to us, but we did talk with the industry association. And Car insurers in general don't have networks they've negotiated rates with, so they will do a number of things. In some states, like New Jersey, there's a fee schedule that the state sets, and they say, here's how much you should reimburse these providers for this, that, and the other thing. That's what happened with some of Mark Gottlieb's bills. But if something's not on the fee schedule, which also happened with Mr. Gottlieb, then the insurer looks around and says, well, what's usually paid in this area? And they pay that in general. What's usually paid, however, often translates into whatever is charged. So GEICO did indeed pay a number of items on the hospital and surgeon's bills that were at full charges. Whatever the doctor or hospital charged, they paid it with no discount. So that's partly why car insurers often tend to pay more for medical care than do health insurers, which is why you can go through your auto insurance coverage fairly quickly. So what's the takeaway here? Obviously, you can't control getting hit by someone who runs a red light. What can you do to make sure that something like this doesn't happen to you? Yeah, it's, it's you know, there's a lot of things. You, there's a few things you can do. One, like Mr. Gottlieb, have the maximum amount of personal injury protection that you can. Um, when you do get in uh, a situation like this, if you've got some kind of non-emergency surgery scheduled, like Mr. Gottlieb, it's a good idea to check and see, A, does your car insurer have a network? Some of them do, many of them don't, but ask. But secondly, always check with your health insurer because they're going to be the ones that kick in secondarily and you're going to want to be in network, if at all possible, with your providers. So check with them. Another thing that folks recommended uh, in a situation like this is to try to get in writing how much it's going to cost and match that up with how much you have left in your auto fund. And if it's not going to cover it, perhaps you can negotiate a rate with your surgeon or your hospital that would 
fall within what you've got left in your auto insurance fund. Yikes. Uh, A cautionary tale indeed. Julie Appleby, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Okay, we are back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Sarah, why don't you go first this week? Sure. So I am um, touting one of my own stories called Conflicts Galore. Upcoming accelerated approval cancer panel includes many industry relationships. The FDA today is actually on its final day of a unprecedented meeting where it's going back and looking at a number of cancer drugs, which were granted kind of early access to the market based on promising data, but not full data that really shows it kind of extended people's lives or improved their lives with their types of cancer. And it's just very unusual that the FDA actually really kind of holds companies accountable in this situation. But what I found interesting was they issued six conflict of interest waivers for physicians and other academics and so forth to sit on the committee. And that is a lot. Um, In some cases, six people was more than half of the panelists who voted on some of these drugs this week. And a lot of it, it just really demonstrated how tied up academic physicians are with the drug industry. So these were doctors that essentially get large amounts of money to work on clinical trials of these drugs, perhaps in slightly different cancer settings. But people say there's sort of research that shows not only like you sort of become more attached or passionate about, you know, sort of the projects you work with. And then also just that these people really for their careers and their advancement, yes, they work for a university and their pay from the drug companies is sort of indirect. But these relationships really are very crucial to maintaining their careers in academia. So it sort of highlights a broader challenge in how our academic kind of research funding structure is set up. It's a really cool story. Uh, Mel. Yeah, my story this week is by my roll call colleague, Emily Koff. FEMA's tasks pit COVID-19 vaccinations against hurricane prep. And Emily's story sort of looks at how typically this time of year is when, you know, FEMA workers are, you know, maybe taking vacation and starting to get ready for what is a big time for the agency during hurricane season. And they are sort of on this, you know, year plus of being really involved in the pandemic and responding, you know, experiencing burnout. They've been really involved in the vaccine distribution effort, sort of running these big mass vaccination sites across the country and looking at how this might actually sort of wear down FEMA for the upcoming hurricane season starting later this summer and whether or not that might kind of put them at a disadvantage of, you know, so many FEMA teams are sort of right now working on other things. They're not really getting ready and doing the trial runs and the things that they're doing for hurricane season. So it's, you know, yet another look at, you know, how the pandemic is affecting not just a key workforce in terms of, you know, burnout and their ability to do their jobs, but also looking at sort of getting ready for this big season um, that could put them at a disadvantage once the weather starts later this year. Yeah. In other words, it's not just the healthcare workforce that's being stressed. Joanne. Uh, This is a piece by Masha Gessen in The New Yorker called How Vaccine Hesitancy is Driving Breakthrough Infections in Nursing Homes. What's happened in the nursing homes is a very high vaccination rate among the patients or residents, and it's not so great among the people who work there. And it's not just the less educated people, it's nurses, including nurses, people who have professional degrees and college educations and probably should know better. The rate of healthcare workers taking the vaccinations have 
risen, but in some nursing homes, it's still pretty low. And they can come in with asymptomatic infections. It's how it got into the nursing homes in the first place. And they and then they spread it to people in the nursing homes. Now, this article doesn't say, oh, see, the vaccines don't work. It's the opposite. See, in nursing homes where the staff is vaccinated, there's the, the residents are protected. There have not been a lot of deaths. There have been some in one home in Kentucky, but there have been infections. They're still rare. They, the, these vaccines are effective, but you know, when an older person who's old enough and sick enough and vulnerable enough to get to be in a nursing home, you know, what's a mild infection for them is not what it is a mild infection for the rest of us. They're at risk of, they're not healthy. So, um, you know, it's just sort of how these myths and um, exaggerated fears and misinformation is marring what is both among the most successful aspects of our vaccination program and among our most important because of the vulnerability. So nurses should get their shots. (laughs) Well, mine is this week's episode of This American Life. It's called The Herd. Part one is a story by my KHN colleague, Anna Maria Berry Jester, called Hazardous to Your Health Official, about the giant toll taken during the pandemic by public health officials who are trying to keep their communities safe and healthy and getting harassment and death threats in return. We will also link to the longer print version of Anna Maria's story that's on the KHN website. Part two of this week's This American Life is called The Elephant in the Zoom by my former NPR colleague, David Kestenbaum. And it's a deep dive into those Frank Luntz focus groups with vaccine-hesitant Trump voters. And even if you've read the stories about them, and we talked about them a couple of weeks ago, it's worth listening to some of the people's actual comments. It is an entire episode that is well worth your time. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Yang, who makes us all sound okay, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Joanne? At Joanne Cannon. Sarah? At Sarah Carlin. Mel. At Mel McIntyre. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.